Don't miss the biggest, baddest rematch at UFC 260 as heavyweight champion Stipe Miocce and number one contender Francis Ngannou meet for the second time. UFC 260 on March 27th is exclusively available to ESPN Plus subscribers for $69.99. Visit ESPNPlus.com PPV. You also don't want to miss Greeny. Mike Greenberg brings his unmatched depth of sports knowledge, fun, and entertainment to ESPN Radio weekdays from 10 a.m. to noon Eastern time. Or listen to the podcast of the show wherever you find your podcast. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here, talking to me. Hi, my name is Kathy Budig, and my dilemma is that I'm podcasting with Sarah Spain right now with noise-reducing earphones that make me think my brain is going to get sucked out before this conversation is over. Great question. Great. I actually can see it right now looking at you on the Zoom. Giant, suffocating headphones. Uh, They look very cool, very sleek, white, stylish, uh, but it's clear that your brain is squeezed. And frankly, the noise reduction seems a little superfluous. I don't know if we need that right now. So this is very simple. Listen very closely. Get different headphones. Boom. Solved. That's what she said. I'm sure you recognize that lovely voice talking about the brain-squeezing headphones as Catherine Budig, who made an appearance on last week's episode singing the praises of Chef Kristen Kish. Well, she's back. She's a yoga teacher and author, the creator of the Aim True Yoga DVD produced by Gaim, author of the books The Women's Health, Big Book of Yoga, and Aim True. She was the yoga editor to Women's Health Magazine for five years, contributed recipes, and sat on the Yahoo Health Advisory Board, and has been a regular contributor to countless health and yoga outlets. She's currently the co-host of the podcast Free Cookies with her wife, my former ESPN colleague Kate Fagan. She teaches regular online classes at glow.com, has a capsule collection with yoga line Kira Grace, super cute stuff. I have some of it. She also hosts the Inky Phoenix Book Club and is currently writing a fantasy fiction novel. We talked about all sorts of stuff uh, from seeking social media followers to finding the true meaning of balance, grief, and recovery. Uh, We talked about her divorcing a man and marrying a woman in pretty short order and how family and friends and social media followers reacted. We talked getting naked for work and definitely got the most honest, most embarrassing moment answer I've gotten yet in the Spanish Inquisition. You're going to love this. You're going to love Catherine. That's what she said. My month of wildly successful badass women continues. (laughs) And I'm actually really excited because, Catherine, I feel like I know you and have spent more time with you than I actually have because of the internet and because... Your wife is someone that I think is a wonderful person and you guys so clearly love each other and share so many wonderful thoughts about each other that I just internalize those as if I've hung out with you, which I haven't much done, but I'm very excited to get to pick your brain and talk to you more. And um, just prepping for this, there's so many different things we can get into and and, um, so many different angles on the work you're doing, but I want to start way back when um, and growing up, what kind of kid were you? Oh, man. I grew up in what feels like a land before time now in Lawrence, Kansas. And no, it wasn't on a farm. It was on a university. But it was definitely, you know, the times when like a parent would throw you out of the house and you would just go do whatever you wanted and would come home in time for dinner. And that was fine. Yeah. So I play on construction you, equipment and stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, like swing from cranes, land into boulders. Um, I I was the little kid who was always outside playing make-believe. Like, I loved Robin Hood, and I would play all the cast of characters myself. Um, I would definitely eat a lot of plants that, like, maybe in retrospect could have killed me. <laughs> but I would, like, suck on honeysuckles and burst open milk pods. I don't even know what they are. Um, but, yeah, so I actually had this pretty idyllic childhood of being by myself a lot. And I do think that's where a lot of my imagination comes from. So I'm grateful to be born in Kansas in the eighties. Yeah. What did your parents do for a living? (laughs) My father was a chancellor of the university of Kansas and uh, my mom was the, you know, the genius behind the scenes the entire time. Your dad was also president of the American league, right? Correct. Did that filter down into a great love of sports for you? It absolutely did. I, I, it's so crazy because as a little girl, we would go do so many baseball oriented trips. I mean, I, I, we, I went to high school in Princeton and would take the, the train into New York and then get on the subway by myself. And I'm, I was very small. I'm still only five foot two, but you know, like wedged into people's armpits on the way to Yankee stadium and then get there and get to to go to a World Series. It was unreal. And, you know, I, I've had Yogi Berra ask me where the little boy's room is. <laughs> you know, I've had Reggie Jackson kind of sweet talk me a little bit. It, it's pretty nuts, the experiences that I had as a young woman. And I had no idea how yeah. special they were at the time. Because of the baseball connection. So high school in Princeton, New Jersey then? Was it a boarding school? No, public. Public high school. So you guys Princeton moved? High. Yes. We, when my dad got the job with the American league, we moved from Kansas to Jersey because my mom didn't want to raise me in New York city and Princeton's, you know, like a 50 minute train ride commute. So, so when people ask where you're from or when you identify with a place, is it more New Jersey or Kansas? I think I'm more of a Kansas girl at heart. You know, I, I am definitely a Jayhawk at heart. (laughs) Like I will root for Jayhawks. My alma mater is UVA. And God bless him. And I know the Cavaliers have actually been pretty decent at basketball now, but I am a Jayhawk through and through. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that, that that's where all my sentiment comes from because Princeton was middle school and high school. And I don't know about y'all listening, but that was a dirty, dirty time. And so... Dirty, <laughs> dirty how? I just... I I was bullied a lot and picked on. And really? Yeah, you know, like I had that experience my sophomore year of high school where I kissed a guy that one of my girlfriends wanted to be with and she made my life a living hell Mm. and turned basically 72% of the (laughs) high school against me. Um, So those were good times. It's just rough. Like, you know, kids are trying to figure everything out and it was, it was, it gave me thick skin, I guess. Yeah. That's always a good way to, to, to spin it. Right. Try to find a positive in like just trash. I'd (laughs) rather be alone outside playing Robin hood than dealing with like people leaving toilet seats with poop in it on my front porch. (laughs) Oh, that's terrible, man. Kids are the, it's just, it's just, it's the worst. Um, all right. So UVA, you were a double degree in English and drama. What did you think you wanted to do with your life when you left for college and were matriculating your way through UVA? Ooh, matriculating. That's a good word. Um, I, I, at that point, was deeply immersed in the theater program and thought that I wanted to be an actor, which is why I moved to Los Angeles to pursue my (laughs) dreams. Um, But it it 
fell in line with also falling in love with yoga when I was at university. And so I moved out to LA to immediately start a teacher training program at Yoga Words so I could have an income basically while I auditioned to become, you know, a star. But very quickly realized that that world is gnarly and it, I want nothing to do with it. And I am a big fan of watching shows, but I am so grateful that I don't have to be on the other side. How far did you get into it? Did you take classes? Were you uh, were you just auditioning off of like breakdowns on Actors Access and Craigslist and stuff? Right. Or were you? Oh my god, I haven't thought about that. So I mean, long. this is coming from someone yeah. that moved to LA to be an actor. You get it. The same I did thing. get my SAG card. I got yeah. my SAG card, um, and that was from being an extra on Mission Impossible Three. Nice. And I was also a stunt actor on uh two and a half men and i got to pick up charlie sheen and take him off of what a stage. joy i mean not just me yeah but, you know yeah uh so these were the big big breaks <laughs> that i had <laughs> in los angeles um yeah it, it, it's sad because and maybe you agree with this i miss the art like i, I what i truly miss is theater i miss being on stage yeah. um it, it's a beautiful craft and it, it is a gift to the world to have these stories told in the way that they are but I just don't like what Hollywood tells the, the, the worth, how they just take their worth and crumble it in their hands. And it doesn't matter how good you are successful. It is fleeting and it just blows away. And I see, I do have friends who are in Hollywood and I see what it does to their egos. And it's, it's insane. These are talented, beautiful people. And they can't see that. for the Also the, the process of trying to make it is so fraught with, everything you hear about that is very much a reality and not just generalizations and stereotypes, where if you're someone who's used to working hard to earn the things you want, you suddenly mm -hmm. are like, oh, no, you're just supposed to go to dinner with assholes and like kiss yes. ass, even though they're yes. all people. It, yeah, that was not my my jam. But yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, that you moved out there, but thankfully had already found this this thing that that also interested you and um something i i heard you, the first time you went to yoga you were not a fan a, a friend brought you along and it took a couple mm -hmm. times before you were on board yeah i had to get dragged back i it, it i had that kind of stereotypical experience where the teacher i wasn't used to the wellness language and the deeply esoteric approach which is, i'm still not a fan if i'm being completely honest it's i like when people get esoteric when it makes sense and where it's derivative of like, I don't know, some scripture or something, like some kind of statistic. But, you know, it was very much like your body is like a rock in the river and the water is rolling over you. And I was just like, what are you trying to say to me? I don't <laughs> understand. And I was adjusted in a way that I, I wasn't used to having someone touch me in a class either. That's very much part of the yoga culture, which can be beautiful or fraught with issues, depending on who the teacher is. But yeah, she she dragged me back, and it didn't take long. We, uh, I found another teacher. Her name is Jennifer Elliott. She's a fantastic, phenomenal senior Ashtanga teacher, and she was just a goddess. And I wanted to be like her. I just wanted to be <laughs> like her. So I think I was a little obsessed and couldn't understand why the class made me feel so good. And started proudly toting. I had a little Nike yoga mat with a strap that would go across my chest. 
and I was just hot shit <laughs> all into it. <laughs> it so well, I want to cool. I want to get into that part of it in a second, but I'm curious because um, a lot of people I think have that experience, not as much now when it's much more omnipresent, but especially early on when yoga was still becoming a newer thing for people to try out. I was coming from the athlete background, division one athlete of like, push, push, push. Everything has to make you sweat really hard and be really hard. Otherwise it's not worth anything. So when I would go to yoga, I was like, this is, I don't want to stretch. <laughs> I want to yes. stretch. And then actually when I fell in love with yoga was that yoga works. And now I'm wondering mm. if I ever took a class from you because, um, long story short, uh, I was, I was at the ESPYs working the red carpet and one of the baseball players got this gift bag for presenting. And I was going through his gift bag. What'd you get? What'd you get? And I'm looking <laughs> at all this stuff and I'm like, Whoa, a full year of yoga. Do you do yoga? Okay. And he was like, he was like, no. And I was like, can I just have this? He's like, whatever. So it's, I take it in to this yoga works and they're like, where did you get this? Cause that's like thousands of dollars of just that's a no whole joke. year of unlimited yoga. Yoga works is expensive. And that was clear to me because I was poor as hell. And the entire class was always like these rich ass ladies in Brentwood. Yes. So did you ever teach at the one on Montana in, in Brentwood? I did. I did. I yeah. taught Montana and Main Street. So there's a strong there's chance. There's a strong chance that you helped. your downward facing dog, Fostered baby. my love of it. <laughs> um, but I would have to run three miles to get there to then do the yoga and then run home. So that way I balanced the desire for like you, need to sweat. You sound like my wife. Yeah. That sounds yeah. like exactly what my <laughs> wife does. We'll um, do a yoga class and she's like, I'll just do a 15 minute spin. And I'm like, ugh, okay. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. It's that weird <laughs> athlete thing. So we'll get right back to the interview, but I know I'm not alone in needing to try a few yoga classes before I fell in love with it. So for those of you out there who have tried once or twice and given up, I really recommend trying again. And even if it turns out that Catherine wasn't one of the teachers at Yoga Works that turned me into a devotee, at least there is one other person who I know definitely owes Catherine, and that's actress Sasha Mamet. She continues this month's Women's History Month shoutouts with her praises for Catherine. Heidi ho to all of you listeners out there, my name is Asha Mamet, and I am an actor and a writer and an animal rescue activist and a horse girl and a lover of yoga, but I have a confession to make. That was not always true. It's scandalous, but I used to hate yoga. Catherine, I'm sorry, but I will say you were the one that converted me. I was introduced to Catherine's online classes on Yoga Globe by my best friend, Emma Goldman, who is also a wonderful yoga teacher. And she was like, I promise this woman's going to make you love yoga. And I was like, you're wrong. And she was right. <laughs> and not only is Catherine an exceptional teacher, which is, I think, one of the main reasons people adore her classes so much and why she converted me into a daily yoga doer and lover, but she is just so unabashedly her silly, fabulous, smart, sassy, ridiculous metaphor-using self. And it's impossible not to love her and want to be around her and listen to the wisdom that she has to impart not only when it comes to yoga, but also life. And I, of course, became totally hooked on her classes and then 
also became convinced that we needed to become friends. So I stalked her on Instagram like one does. And one might say forced, although I hope she doesn't feel that way, her to be my friend. And she was everything that I hoped that she would be and more. She is like an absolute ray of sunshine, not in a saccharine way whatsoever, but she constantly reminds me, not only when we chat, but also just every time I take one of her classes to be grateful for life and like she would say, the meat suit that we have been given and the world that we live in. And she has the most incredible laugh and she is such a good friend and she is just so many things. And I'm constantly impressed by the fact that when she wants to do something, she goes out and does it. She's writing a novel. She's doing a podcast. She's such a doer. And if I were her grandmother, I would probably say she's a mover and a shaker. But above all things, she is one of a kind. And I would go as far as to say she is a unicorn and I adore her. Thanks to Zasha. I was such a fan of hers on Girls and Mad Men. So very cool to have her on the podcast. Back to the interview. So you end up falling in love with it and Ashtanga is rigid. It does not fit with my idea of you or the way that you approach it. So was there a pivot point after which that helped you find yoga? And then you were like, okay, I'm going to take all those principles, but I'm going to do it in a way that's much different. Totally. And part of that was my mentor, my teacher, her name was Matias Radi. She was the co-founder of Yoga Works. And she was this, you know, four foot 11 Israeli woman with the shrillest voice and the biggest heart. And she, you know, she practiced with Patabi Joyce, the founder of Ashtanga Yoga, and she just put her own damn spin on it. You know, she was Mati. And so she taught me right from the get go that you respect the lineage and you make it your own and you take the tweaks that make it accessible and find your voice within something that has existed for so long. So I was already given permission from the very beginning from Mati to do me. And that's a big deal though in yoga, because there's a very split world there of make it what it can be to serve you versus if you aren't using the Sanskrit words and identifying with the original root principles of why it exists and you're defiling something that's supposed to be much bigger than just an athletic pursuit. That seems limiting to me. Absolutely. And as Americans, you know, as most Western things are, like we have appropriated Deep, right, right. Deeply, and yeah. especially within yoga. So there's a lot of work on the modern day Westerners could understand this lineage better and not be like, oh, I'm not going to talk about that Sanskrit. I don't understand what that is. It's like, right. that is disrespectful. Yes. But it, it, it also doesn't need to be like sacred has many definitions. And to me, sacred is laughter. Sacred is like finding yourself within something that has existed for so long. And you know, Mati was one of those people, and even as well respected as she was, I mean, she brought in blocks and straps, and she was like, "We're gonna make these really rigid poses that were created for adolescent Indian boys, right? <laughs> adolescent Indian boys is what this was created for." And you like might be in your sixties, and this is, and you're a woman, and this isn't a good idea for you. So we're gonna put you into this. So even that structure, a lot of devout Ashtangis would be like, "Oh no, like you do the pose." 
there's no variations, there's no modifications, you do it, which is bullshit. Yeah. Like that's how people hurt themselves. That's how people's egos crumble. And, you know, like, are we trying to help people and bring them in? Or are we trying to isolate them and keep it into this little club? And ultimately, I think it's an elitist viewpoint. And I, I am not pleased with people who have that approach. It also feels, if you look at it as a metaphor, the idea that if you can't get to something, you either get mm-hmm. to it the way you're supposed to or you give up. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. the blocks and the and everything else, they can get you there eventually if you put in and the you work can feel and you use those things to help you get it. there. Yeah. 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 Which makes a lot more sense because then eventually you might get there without the block or the strap and then you've achieved this thing instead of, well, you couldn't get to it without those things. So now you're never going to and, and we're not going to help you get there, which seems odd. So you fall super in love with this and you get really deeply into it, but then you have injuries and you're trying to do it full time and make a life of it. And you sort of burn out. Is this when you realize like, let me look around at adjacent things to this thing that I love and figure out how to make a life of it without the, the like getting lost in it. That's a good question. I, I have always been multifaceted in my interests and, um, and, and I think my talents as well, like, Jack of many, right? You know, and so trades master of none. Exactly. Like I always, I've always loved to cook. I've always loved reading. I've always loved fashion. Like there's so many different things. And so I think as my career as a yoga teacher was climbing, I was always trying to find a way to pull all the other things that I loved into the career, like trying to braid them together. So it wasn't necessarily all these different compartmentalized things that I could be doing, but rather a union of them. And it's, uh, it turns out the world likes to know they're coming to you for one thing and one thing only. And I have just refused to be that person. And it, it, it's, I'm sure it's stunted the growth of where I could be career wise if I had just focused on that one thing, but it's, it's simply not who I am. And when I started to get burnt out, it did give me permission to go deeper. You know, my second book, Aim True, was not just about yoga. It was about the the principle of aiming true and how it applies in all different aspects of our life. And yes, it, it applies to our mind through meditation. Yes, through our physical body, through doing yoga, and that, but so much more. So that was kind of my first big uh, professional attempt at kicking those French doors open and letting some more air in. Um, and and now if people look at me, I'm sure they're like, what the hell is she? What does she do? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay if you don't understand. I'm an enigma wrapped in a mystery. Yeah. Um, but I like it that way. You know, I get bored so mm-hmm. easily. And and I don't know. I think the the essence of yoga is vast. And to limit it to something like the postures or teacher trainings or opening your own studio, it's just... And, and to each their own. For some people, that's incredibly powerful and will fill them up. But for me, I just have so many different thirsts. Yeah. Um, I want to get into Aim True and the other stuff. But I also want to talk about, you, you mentioned potentially it stunted um, your growth within the business. But one of the things that's often said about you and a lot of the publicity you've gotten has been for being able to turn this passion for yoga into a business and to have a business mind in a world that can often feel 
hippy dippy and flighty. <laughs> and, and, you know, one of my best friends is a yoga teacher and she runs retreats and she, she talks about this balance of like, she used to be in finance and consulting. So she brings that into the world and finds that many people in the space are not bringing that aspect in. They're just <laughs> bringing in the spiritual hippy dippy, which is nice, but like, there's still a schedule and you have a class to teach and this is the yeah. time that it is and that kind of stuff. So you have always brought in this business mind. Um, but you've also sort of, always push the envelope a little. Um, you did a, a, a well-known campaign with toe socks, which is uh, like mm -hmm. gripper socks that you would wear in a yoga class, but <laughs> you were naked. Socks. I call them. Yeah, them. girl. Grippers. So uh, you're wearing nothing but your socks. And uh, of course it gets great publicity for the company. And a lot of people think of it as art and, and beautiful. And then there are those who are coming from the old school of like, what are we doing here? Naked yoga or using sexuality to promote something that's spiritual. Um, did that affect you in meaningful ways? Or are you the kind of person that says, I've made this choice, whatever people say about it, meh. I wish I could be that latter person. <laughs> so do no, I. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm super empathic and I feel everything. Like, for, you know, yesterday my wife had a very stressful phone call that she had to take and she was felt like she was going to throw up. Mm. And while she was on the phone call, all of a sudden I felt like I was going to throw yeah. up. You know, it's just like it. it you, I very much feel, <laughs> it sounds like such a yoga teacher. I feel it. I feel everything. Um, but I do. And that experience was, because anytime a large group comes after you saying that you're doing something wrong. It would be ill-advised to not sit down and <laughs> check the possibility that maybe you right, are, right? right. <laughs> you know, like maybe you are. And, you know, my goal is never to harm, but I think if 2020 has taught us anything, you know, sentiment doesn't mean shit if you're not following through. Right. So it, it it's was impact, not intent, right? Exactly. If the impact Your intentions don't mean anything. Yeah. If, it's if it's if helpful to not, know them. You're hurting. But if the eventual impact is the same, then it's on you to figure out why those didn't match. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think one of the big takeaways from that that hurt me as a, a feminist, honestly, was the fact that I was sexualizing yoga, which inherently means that the naked female body is equated with sex, mm -hmm. which is a major problem. And to me, like I, I have a framed photograph from that photographer in our house that I love it so deeply. And I will always look at it and remember that time in my life and how beautiful it was. And I felt empowered. I felt comfortable in my skin. I wish I could feel that comfortable in my skin again right now. So it was, I think, like anything, it's so subjective you know, someone can look at that if they're in a place in their life and see art or someone can be deeply struggling with how they feel in their meat suit and look at that and think like, I don't want to see someone skinny and muscular naked, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's like anything, there's always going to be an argument for each side. And as the subject, listen to both, be kind and notice if next time you do it, like if you messed it up, do better. Right. There's always this question of commodification when it comes to things that we try to preserve the purity of or that we as associate the value of with the greater good, right? Even though we fully understand that everything from music to food to wellness to literally everything in our world is commodified and, and, and a business. Mm -hmm. um, throughout your time working in yoga, 
how do you keep your connection to the good it's doing for you and other people and not, since it is a business for you, get caught up in the pull of maybe this brand wants you to put something on Instagram, mm-hmm. but you don't really believe in them, but they have yeah. a lot of money that they want to pay you to say that this is a great weight loss drink or that you yeah. should go to this yoga and not this yoga, even if you believe they're both great, but they want you to, you know, how do you balance that? Cause it is a business. It is a business. And I mean, we live in a capitalistic society, like everything, like you said, um, it's actually something that I pride myself in because every paid partnership that I've ever taken on has been a product that I legitimately like and or use. Um, even if it if it doesn't feel like something that directly correlates with yoga, if it's something that I respect, then I'm okay. And I, I have turned down lucrative deals because I haven't believed in the ethos of the company before. You know, it's it's also hard. And, and now I think in this Instagram yoga celebrity kind of culture that we're in, it's easy to think that yoga teachers can pull a lot of money. And I mean, I guess if you are some big time influencer, you can be making like serious dough just from like curling your hair and Mm -hmm. tagging it and putting it up in your story. But generally speaking, yoga teachers do not make good money. Like you do not, well, once upon a time, at least when I started, you did not become a yoga teacher because you wanted to be famous or you wanted to have a big bank account. So I've always been a big proponent of for yoga teachers to know their worth because it, it is so common for companies to come to a yoga teacher and ask them to do things for free and do it because of like good karma, right? Like <laughs> the world needs this right now. So mm-hmm. you should do this for free where it's like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like this is actually, this is my job. So I have tried to teach a lot of teachers like, Hey, you know, like don't ask for too much and be an asshole, but like, you shouldn't be driving to your event dreading it because you're getting underpaid either. Like you really need to know your worth because what you're putting into the world is important. Um, so that's something that I just keep in mind whenever I do a partnership. And honestly, it's been a while since I've done anything like that, which is a relief because there is always even if I believe in it, there is that sticky feeling of like, this is an advertisement. Right. Well, and it's hard because I feel the same way. Like there's things that I, and and sometimes I'll post stuff and I'll be like, you guys are going to think this is an ad, but I just really love this. And I want to share yeah. it with you guys. And then there's times when, you know, you see other people do that and you're like, I really think I'm going to believe them this time, but I can't tell if that's real or if they're like doing that because they got paid. Like, you know, you like see like face cream and you're like, is it magical? Or (laughs) I don't know. I think I might need to buy it and try to to find out. (laughs) We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what is your favorite word? Oh gosh, my favorite word. That's so tricky because whatever my favorite word is, I don't know because I'm sure I overuse it wildly. I love wildly. I'm the queen of overusing adverbs. Like just like wildly. Okay. So wild from the old English wild with an E in the natural state, uncultivated, untamed, undomesticated, uncontrolled, Uh, Then it came to be used to describe one who is sexually dissolute or loose in the mid-13th century in the 1590s, distracted with excitement or emotion or crazy. And then the U.S. slang sense of exciting or excellent was in 1955. Uh, There's also the wild or to run wild. 
and like you use it, Catherine, as an adverb wildly from the early 15th century. And I very much agree that adverbs are sorely underused and make for a lot more fun and colorful dialogue. So I love wildly. It's a good one. Speaking of great words, you're going to learn today. My word of the week actually stems from the joy I've been getting in listening to the people I've grabbed to sing the praises of my guests this month. The friends, colleagues, uh, those who've been inspired and influenced, they all have such a joy in their voice when talking about this person that they admire. And it had me thinking about the rare and gravely underused word, confelicity, pleasure in another's happiness. This is from the Latin, the prefix of con or com is with, and then felicitas, meaning happiness. With happiness, a sharing in someone else's success and joy and delight. And we sure do use schadenfreude a lot in our society, pleasure in others' misery. So perhaps we should consider using confelicity just as often. So in a sentence. We'd probably be a lot happier as a society if we focused more on confelicity than schadenfreude. Now let's get back to the interview. You mentioned aim true, and it's funny because I say all the time on this podcast, I was a heptathlete, which is literally jack of all trades, master of none. I love doing a million things. I am somebody who likes to know things and share them and tell people when I learn something cool, like, oh, do you guys, don't you guys also want to know this? I love knowing things. I love learning things. Um, and so sometimes that manifests itself in like wanting to share all the things and wanting to, to, to engage with people on all the things. And to your point, sometimes people are like, what right do you have to act like you right. know any better? And that's especially true, I think, with things that are sort of concepts instead of rooted in statistics or numbers. So you look at people like Brene Brown or Elizabeth Gilbert or Glennon Doyle or you, and a lot of what you do is just, I'm very good at articulating living and the world and seeing ourselves and how we see each other and all that stuff. And for some people, it's off-putting because they can't assign a PhD in life advice, right? Yes. And so I wonder what whether there was a moment where you stopped or if you ever did doubt your position as someone who on social media and in books should be qualified to do that, or if it always just felt innate in you. I, I mean, I think like every human alive, I've struggled with the imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone, I, I was just listening to a story about Neil Gaiman, who's my favorite author and just total rock star struggling with imposter syndrome where I'm like, what? Yeah. Neil Gaiman. <laughs> you know, and, and I would if someone said they hadn't worried about that, I would worry about them. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And I mean, in you putting me next to someone like Glennon Doyle, I'm like, I don't really think that's the company I'm keeping. That means she is incredibly eloquent at noting all the little things that happen during the day that we feel that mm -hmm. we don't know how to articulate. And I think I maybe used to be a little bit better at that, but I, I think Aim True, for example, was the product of being a yoga teacher. And this is something that I, I've talked about before, the difference be between being a yoga teacher and being a yoga instructor. Like anyone can instruct something. Anyone can be taught how to instruct the logistics and the order of something. Not everyone is a teacher. And I deeply pride myself in being a teacher of yoga, not an instructor of yoga. So talking about life and the nuances that I notice and trying to find new ways to say the same old thing that's been said before, 
I think that's a, a byproduct of being a teacher. And I do feel stronger attachment to the role of being a teacher than a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. I just feel that it's something that's in me that I am here in many different forms to guide. Yeah. Um, not because I know everything, but that I, I have a way of shepherding. I think the empath thing is a big part of that. I um, often talk about that myself. I think if you feel things very deeply, and I think if you also feel like you understand what other people are saying and feeling and trying to get across quicker and more clearly than other people do, then you have a tendency to want to make that link and make that bridge for other people between something, whether that's a, a something that they're trying to reconcile internally or an outside product that you're trying to help them connect with. Um, it does all become a part of like that, that umbrella of teaching. Aim True has recipes, yoga postures, life advice, like sort of workbook type things for how to do things. And I, I was just talking to someone about this yesterday. I wonder if you've come across this in the last year. A lot of the books about habit changing, lifestyle, wellness, et cetera. Talk about ways to try to change things about yourself and your behaviors that you'd like to and and what works for people. Sometimes it's like pairing. Like if you never take your vitamins, mm-hmm. put your toothbrush on top of your vitamins, you're always going to brush your teeth, reach for the toothbrush, <laughs> see the vitamins, be like, ah, my vitamins, right? But oftentimes people talk about the epiphany moment, which is something massive happens that affords you a new perspective. It could be a heart attack, it could be stepping on a scale and it's 300 pounds. It could be someone passing away. It could be an accident, any sort of things. And that you can't manufacture those so that so often those are the most dramatic ways to change your life, but you can't force them. I wonder if you've felt over the last year that the pause that was put on our world and our lives could be considered that epiphany moment and people could use that in a positive way to change behaviors or lifestyle. Oh my God, absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I was, I got an email this morning that I found triggering, which is funny because Kate, my wife hates the word triggering. She thinks well, it's overused. People like used it in a, it's, it's like woke. It's like, it started out with a purpose right. and now it's only used by the people t- who are against like the real it's conversation so, being had. So like, yeah. what's the replacement? I woke up and something really tickled my ass. Like, <laughs> what, what do I, I don't like, think that's you know right either. I mean? Nope. I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> rub, so now that everybody rub under- me the wrong way, rub me the wrong way. Um, <laughs> um, but r- reminded me of what you were saying about 2020, where I, I had an ask and the, you know, it was like a, a team, like a publicist and all that came back and they're like, well, you know, this person is really slammed right now. So I'm going to send it to this other person on their team to see if it'll get through to them. And I was just like, okay, come on now. I'm like, we're still coming off of 2020. We're still in a pandemic. I understand that people are doing stuff, but to me, that's just code for it's not a priority. Mm-hmm. And I'm like everyone just so tired of that culture of glorifying busy. And I do think the one beautiful lesson that we can take away from just such a shit mess of a year that hurt so many people is that we don't have to be all things at all times. And I know you relate to that. I know that's something that I was like on my hustle and I just, it's not how I want to live. It's not what makes me happy. I, I have learned that 2020, I want to live in the process instead of the product. Mm. And 
that that is where I find my happiness is in the creating. It's when I have to hand it over to the world in hopes of receiving approval or accolades that I fall apart. Well, and that's so the message of aim true, right? Because it's about where you're aiming. It's not about where the arrow or the proverbial yes. whatever it is lands. Whatever which, the bullseye is. Which, I, you know, we're we're not contradicting ourselves, even though we're saying jack of all trades, master of none, but don't try to be everything, everyone. And even though we're saying impact is more important than intent, those don't contradict. They are all still living within spaces that make sense, if you understand. But I do love the idea that if you're if you have good intentions and the aim that you have is true and right and honest to you, then follow what path it is. Don't aim for something and have where that is be the the goal. It's where you're starting from and what you're hoping for and then move through that and let it take you, which, um, you know, you're just talking about sort of changing your perspective on the hustle game. And I was looking at old interviews with you and one of them, you're wearing the shirt that's like hustle is my cardio. And I was like, I want that shirt. I was like, I want that shirt though. Cause that's still like in my head. Um, you know, I think, uh, but that to me feels like a mirror to, of what, Kate, your wife has been going through the last couple of years. So I want to, I want to get into some of that. Um, because obviously, um, Kate Fagan, my former colleague and friend and not former friend, former colleague, current friend. Um, and she was on the podcast shortly after deciding not to re-up with ESPN, which was a massive move. Like no one jumps off the ESPN train, um, while they're at the peak of their success and fame and money. And she talked about the decision to do so, and it resonated with a lot of people who who wrote in, even people at ESPN, to talk about how they loved how honest she was about just the 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 hustle game. And it feels like I just read her new book, which is gorgeous and sad and lovely, and is going to help a lot of people. Um, she addresses a lot that balance for both of you. In both of your fathers were very sick. Um, both of them passed within the last year and a half, and that being something that slowed you down even before the pandemic, this idea of looking around and having to say, where am I putting my time? And ultimately my time is where my life is. And that's so hard for us to do, like to really step away from our understanding of work as the predominant thing and everything else has to fit in around it. Um, Was it easier to both have to be dealing with something similar or is it all the worse to be pulled in all those directions? It was everything. (laughs) <laughs> it was absolutely everything. Um, yes, there there was some dark beauty in the fact that we were losing our fathers at the same time. So we minimally could understand that sense of doom, that sense of pending loss and how it was going to affect us and, and checking in on each other. But we also had very different childhoods. We had very different fathers. And I, I think, and for those of you listening who read her book, All the Colors Came Out, you'll get a very rich understanding of what that relationship was like. And I think it's going to be highly relatable to many people. But, um, you know, for me, I my father built his life off of success. Like he was adopted. He came from no money. And it just molded him into this man that had to succeed and the, the, the moving goalpost, right? Mm-hmm. Constantly. And it's what he instilled in his children. And in many ways, I'm so grateful because that is the reason that I am successful. Like I am very much my daughter's father, but I also, and this is really fun having resentment towards a dead father, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, 
I also have a load, loads of resentment towards him because it is what he prioritized. And I often find myself prioritizing it when I know it's not what actually matters. But it's something that's so deeply ingrained in me that it is like it is daily work for me to strip away this story of what humans think are important and to remind myself of what actually brings me happiness and fulfills me as an individual in this life. So it's, uh, God, I mean, it was just so, so complicated. And, and obviously we're both grateful that it's passed and now we don't have things pulling us away from the nest and we can be with each other 99.9% of the time <laughs> now that it's COVID and we are merged and virtually the same person. Um, but it's, uh, I don't know. I don't think there's a, an easy way of dealing with loss, but I am grateful that I had a a compassionate partner. I mean, we did, and it's also in the book. I mean, we hit heads hard, bad. It was nasty a couple of times because you're selfish. You know, you want your person to always choose you and that wasn't happening. And I was choosing her more than she was choosing me because the inherent relationship that we each had with our individual fathers. So we'll get right back to the interview, but I wanted to just reaffirm here that Kate Fagan's new book, All the Colors Came Out, is fantastic. It is heartbreaking, and I did cry the whole way through, but her honesty and openness and willingness to explore grief and illness and the parent-child relationship, um, along with our identities and the identities of the people we love, all of it will serve you. All of it will make you think about your own relationships, your fears about death, the gratitude that you might have or need more of for every little bit of magic that exists in a step or a word or a breath. It's going to help you with all that. It's out soon. I really recommend it. And um, while I'm at it, uh, reading the book and thinking about Kate's father's illness and eventual passing reminded me of the podcast I did with my friend Sharzad and her mom in the months before her mom's passing. And if you didn't listen to it, I'd really suggest it. I learned so much about facing death head on, recalibrating how we see the end of life in the particular body that we're in, and keys to living and dying without regret. If you search Sarah Spain, that's what she said, gratitude. It'll pop up. It's from uh, February 2019. Give it a listen, especially if you're someone who, like me, uh, sort of tries to avoid and and not address the ideas of death uh, that are inevitable. I found it super helpful. All right, back to the interview. And there is, like like you said, there's there's a sort of dark connection of dealing with the same things at the same time that can be beneficial in understanding each other. There's also something very nice about stability on one side while somebody flails. And mm-hmm. for both of you, it was it was dealing with your father's illness, but also that, like you said, both of you simultaneously saying, what do I want? And have I been doing something I love in the way that I want? Or do I need to change the way I approach work and everything else? And for both of you, it certainly feels like based on talking to Kate, based on the book, based on your social media, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but it feels like both of you have taken the last maybe two years or so especially when Kate left ESPN and obviously you're rejiggering based on salary alone. I mean, that's a massive Mm -hmm. chunk of money that you're just now saying we're okay without that, but this is probably going to change things. Um, And you're both trying to figure out, I would say balance. And in that two years, have you, have you found balance? I mean, it's hard because of the pandemic, right? You would be doing retreats and in traveling and. 
Yeah. What I mean, finding balance, that's one of those questions where it always makes me raise my eyebrow because I'm like, that's like, have you found the elixir for right. life? Um, right, right. Uh, like, there's, it's just this thing that fuels more capitalism because we're all trying to find the I guess I meant things. not that I, not no, that no, no, I know. I'm balance, in the wrong but direction, like, but yeah. But like better uh, than yeah. before or or did yes. you find what you were doing before actually was right you just needed to step away no. to see it <laughs> no <laughs> I, no stepping away was really good because I'm like that's not the life we want to live anymore I don't want to be jet setting for work I don't want to be that person who has to email someone back and be like well I'm just so slammed right now I, I don't miss it I don't want it back you know, I like waking up without an alarm clock. I like drinking our coffee and doing the New York Times crossword puzzle in the morning and then going for a walk with the dogs. And then we start our day. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, but I, it, it is a, a really, mm, it's a powerful refresh and reframing of purpose. Mm-hmm. And I would be lying if I don't have moments of feeling like I've lost my relevance and I want that back. And I want to be in this, you know, the conversation and I want to be my name. I want it circulating with the the people who are doing cool things. Right. But it also turns out when you're writing a novel, which is one of the most isolating things you can ever choose to do is you have to be okay with going into that cocoon and being woven away from everyone else and understanding that like your moment to, wow, this metaphor is so generic, but like (laughs) your moment to like have your wings come out and be colorful will happen when it's time, but you have to be in that cocoon until it happens. But even that I catch myself where I'm like, so what am I doing? Am I writing this book because I want other people to think I'm impressive? Am I doing it because I want to be relevant? Because that's not why I want to create either. Mm -hmm. So it's that, again, it's this like, that's what the past few years has taught us. It's like, I'm not, I'm sick of doing things for other people to like me. I'm sick of doing it to be relevant or to be impressive or to like stand out. And, and, but my ego is a gnarly determined. There's a lot of trappings that come with people liking you and doing things that are cool that people like. And that's hard to turn away if it's meaningful. I think it's all about checking in every day. And seeing, does this still serve me and make me happy? And you have too many days in a row where it doesn't, and then you have to make a change. Exactly. Let's talk about, because it's now been, what, like four or five years since you and Kate started dating? Yeah, we're coming up on five years. Yeah. So you guys were dating when you came to my wedding, but not in Your wedding was very early in our relationship. Yeah. I love that. Uh, and, um, yeah, Kate went through this existential crisis of could she wear Jordans to my wedding? I'm like, if you can wear Jordans to anyone's wedding, it's mine. There should not even be a question about this. She did start out wearing Christian. I know. And then she bought for your wedding. I I I told her not to. Before the ceremony was over, she had already taken them off. And let's remind everyone that you sit during a ceremony. Yeah. Yeah, and I, then I she told her not randomly to. gave them away. I was like, nobody yeah. needs that from you. I want you to be yourself. And if anyone wants Jordans to be in appearance at their wedding, it's me. <laughs> yeah, it would be yours. Um, yes. But you guys met at the ESPNW Summit. Um, just a friendly encounter. I mean, obviously, you guys both noticed that the other one was a bodacious babe. But you were married mm-hmm. and, and very recently married. Um, mm-hmm. And you've talked about this before, before so I don't want to go over a lot of the same stuff. But... You realized after meeting Kate that it was something special. And you also realized that 
the wedding was more something that you felt you should do. You were like, I'm in my 30s. I've been dating this person. This seems like a solid choice. And it became very clear to you after meeting Kate, oh my gosh, all my dreams and ideas of what love actually is are not made up and fake. And it isn't about settling for solidity. It's out there. I just wasn't maybe looking in the right place or I hadn't met the person yet. So your love story is magical. And I have to say, I have a friend who got divorced maybe six years ago, maybe five, um, and just came out as queer after a lifetime of believing herself to be just straight because that's what the world always said. This is what you like. And um, is in her first relationship early on. But she quoted like you and Kate to me once. And she's not a sports person. And she was like, it's like I heard someone say, you know, I think it was I'm not coming out of the closet. I'm falling into something. What's the thing that you guys always say? Uh, I I wrote a piece for Glow for Pride Month, and I, I'm going to misquote myself, but it, it's it's not about. I didn't feel like I was coming out. I didn't have a coming out moment. I had a falling in. Yeah, yeah, and it's beautiful. I fell in love with her, yeah. and it was. Yeah, the I, that makes me very happy to your friend because it is you know. It, I think now in the culture that we live in, people understand that it's not so black and white, and it's not like oh, so now you're gay, but you used to be straight. Yeah. Um, and, and I admit, I, I used to feel that way about like yes. years, years ago, bisexuality would be like, okay, I get gay and straight, but bi, what does that mean? Just whatever. Yes. And now I'm like, that makes the most sense because it makes just so people. much sense. It yes. makes the most sense. It's you just, just a person. You just fall in love with people. Yeah. And there's so many beautiful, interesting people. Yeah. And I used to call, I, I really liked calling myself fluid, but now I love queer, which is great because Kate's mom hates that word. And she's like, why do you queer? It just doesn't sound good. I'm like, I, I I feel that it's quite encompassing. Yeah, it is. Um, well, I just loved it, and now I'm just constantly sending her amazing things from you and Kate because she's, Aww. I think, some of the early stuff. And Glennon and and uh, Abby Wambach yeah. too. Like there are these great examples for people that um, show every different kind of discovering yourself and and who you love at any age at any part of your life. And I'm sure it sums up very pretty now. But if you can take me back to that must be incredibly difficult because not only are you now ending a relationship fair, like early after you've been married, so it should be the beginning of something wonderful and instead it's immediately ending, but you're also trying to balance that with this incredible love for someone new and tell your friends and family, by the way, I'm, right. you know, <laughs> Girl. Um, and yeah. announce it to a very interested public of many, many followers and people who um, attach to you as a brand and as a as yeah. a thing that they've seen one way. Um, if you can take me back to like all of that at oh, once. Wow. Well, I, I mean, overall, I am so incredibly lucky. And this is also why I don't feel like I had a traditional coming out. I mean, that A, it's not what it felt like for me, but I didn't have um, the trauma that can often come with a coming out story for someone. And I think my dad was more upset about the money he paid on my first wedding than he was surprised that I fell in love with a woman. He was like, whatever, but wait, I just paid for this wedding. <laughs> right? <laughs> Thanks dad. Thanks. Um, God bless him. Um, no, I mean, my family, my friends, my friends and my family are the best. Every single one of them embraced Kate immediately because they saw how happy I was. Mm. And they knew how unhappy I had been. So when you juxtapose those two, they knew I wasn't in the right marriage. They knew I wasn't with the right person. And then they saw this. I mean, it was just like an entire level of my layer of my skin had been shed. It it felt so great. Not to say that 
separation and divorces. It was a really hard year. It was Five not stars. A year. Definitely recommend. <laughs> yeah, it's really fun to go through. Although it does, you know, I, I feel like a woman of the world now. It, it, it does give you so much more compassion to anyone who's going through that. Uh, it teaches you a lot about judgment around people that you don't know. You know, I think that the whole concept that divorce is a failure and mm. somehow is it means that you made a mistake and I don't believe I made a mistake. I don't regret my relationship with my ex-husband. Um, of course, you know, like there are things I wish I had done differently in theory, but I don't believe in changing anything. So I think that's definitely a stigma that I would like lifted from people who are going through divorce. Like this is a beautiful thing often mm-hmm. because it means that they have figured out who they are and what they want and what is going to truly make them happy. And I admire and applaud that. Um, but, uh, and I would say overall the community was very accepting and Kate and I kind of, our relationship was revealed around the same time as Abby and Glennon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert and her, her partner who has since passed. And, and so there was a lot of that floating around in the wellness world. So that helped. But I think the ugly side of it that people don't get to see is that ever since I came out as being with a woman, as far as metrics go with popularity, I have consistently mm-hmm. gone down. And I think that's because I no longer fit the fairy tale mold of little blonde haired, blue eyed yoga teacher who married a big, tall, strong man who's doing that, like, you know, middle of America thing. And, um, and it's the same thing, you know, anytime I speak up politically, anytime I speak up for human rights, which is a lot, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, you get all the, the comments that are posted that people can see, and it probably gets a lot of likes. But stick to scenes, yoga. Because, do you guys? Do you guys uh, have that saying? Stay in, stay in your own lane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that saddens me. And I, I have a lot of queer friends who experience the same thing, who have strong platforms, and it, it just looks so glossy from the outside. But there's still so much hate, and there's still so much division and bigotry, and. And it's just not what you're seeing splashed around on the little squares. And that that has been hard and it continues to be hard. And it, it just frustrates me that there's still so much um, lack of education, lack of wanting to feel outside of themselves. Kind of like we were saying, like, and I agree with you, I used to be this way too. Like you're gay or you're straight. Like this whole bi thing is mm-hmm. confusing. And I think so many people still live in that world and, are very threatened by the concept that they might have something inside of them that is willing to love everyone instead of what they've been told. Yeah. Yeah. You've mentioned before that you get a lot of likes on your posts with Kate, especially the lovey dovey ones. But in addition to the likes from the very enthusiastic people, you also see your numbers drop pretty consistently in terms of followers whenever you post. Is that still happening or do you think? Oh yeah. Oh really? So it's still people that are like, wait, before I thought it was just her friend. And now that I realize like there's enough photos Wait. now for me to start to wonder who this lady is. <laughs> you just gated up way too is much. Is this your my roommate level. still or? <laughs> I know, right? Um, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, uh, that's, I mean, it's also probably hard for you because you are intentionally stepping back from the hustle, 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 hustle. So you're trying to balance like how much of that is, is part of the metrics. I want my relevance, but I'm also like, this is my life. This is my wife. These are my beliefs. These are people that need to be 
like spoken up for and to see that fall away on top of just feeling like I don't have a lot that I'm offering right now. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a weird, it's icky feeling. And then it's further ickified by me giving it credence. Yeah. But it's hard. I mean, as much as we can be very um, aware and especially being married to Kate and me having read what made Maddie run, there's so much in there about how we identify with our social identity as almost a different person than our everyday in real life. But it's hard to, even if we say we shouldn't value likes and follows once you're, once you're in that and you're used to it, um, it's very difficult to suddenly not be someone where every post and every comment is something that everybody has something to say about. You're so used to that. Right. Um, but I, I would argue, and I think I'm sure you know this, that all that you've done for people with yoga and wellness, you're doing even more with, showing a, a beautiful, loving relationship and Thank teaching you. people how to be open with. I believe that. That's I do believe that. Thank you. Even more important. Um, and, and as much a part of wellness as anything else is <laughs> right. true to who you are and who you love quickly. Cause we're running out of time. Tell people what free cookies is and what they can find if they listen to it. Yes. Free cookies is the podcast that I co-host with my wife. It was a woman, um, and we. <laughs> it's been through many. Uh, <laughs> shock, drop the bomb. Um, it's been through a lot of iterations. We started out at ESPNW, so it was kind of pop culture and sports and wellness, and then we moved away from W, kind of shaved back on the sports, and it's evolved into really a podcast about literature and books and authors, and and we still will interview amazing authors. I mean, we've had. Glennon Doyle, Madeline Miller, just like these big, unbelievable writers. But we always start the podcast just shooting the shit. And Lord knows what we're going to talk about. I mean, we have had some really erudite, amazing people. And then we talk probably about like pooping in the opening. And I'm just like, oh, God, I really hope they don't listen to this episode because I'm not sure that's the intro that they were hoping for. Um, but it's so much fun. We We absolutely love it. So we're in our fourth season. We don't really do seasons. We just like take breaks and keep going. Um, And then the Inky Phoenix is my Instagram book club that I started right at the beginning of COVID. And I just love it. It's a, we do a zoom every month and it's it's a book club, primarily literature and fiction um, with books that have like a dollop of magic in them. And it's my happy place. I wanted to create a place on social where you could like guaranteed to go there and, and not be uh, rubbed the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. That's not the answer either. We're, we're going to find, we're going to find a new word for trigger that also doesn't <laughs> rubbing or tickling butts. <laughs> right. we'll find. Um, oh, good. Yeah. You guys did one a couple of years ago with, and I'm going to say her name wrong. I think it's Esther Perel. Oh, Esther Perel. Oh, that was that fascinating. Episode. And I know you guys were like very open about your own sex life and stuff, which people love that kind of like digging into people's personal lives. But beyond that, mm-hmm. she's just really interesting in the way she talks about relationships and forgiveness and all this other stuff. I started following her stuff after hearing that. And I was like, this lady's interesting. Like, If you ever get to hear her speak live, it is magnetic. I mean, she's so dynamic. It's unbelievable. Well, um, lots for people to consume, even though you claim to be stepping back. You've got all sorts of places for people to find you and interact. And of course, on social media, Catherine is just a a magical and wonderful follow and will give you good feels and thoughts when you need them, which is um, 
always, I think always we need them. Um, before I let you go, you do have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's yeah. the Spanish Inquisition. Ten <laughs> speed round questions. Number one, your current career is canceled. There is no yoga or wellness or cooking or fantasy fiction or podcasting or book clubbing. <laughs> What do you do for a career? It has never taken me that long to list all the things that would have to be canceled for someone. Uh, What do you do? I would want to be hired by Trader Joe's to be a dessert sampler. Okay. Very specific. I like it. (laughs) I doubt it pays well, but you would be paid in sugar and joy. Um, (laughs) I would be paid in cavities. (laughs) uh, Number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Jumping out of a plane. Ooh. When was that? That my that was 2011, 2010. Yeah. And fast forward, I was certified and jumped out of a plane 150 times. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, worth it. Yeah. So um, good scare. I guess there's a lesson in that. It was a good scare. Too. It was a yeah. good scare. Uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at anything for one day. What is it? Uh, basketball, just because I would want to impress my wife. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Uh, oh, <laughs> number four, what current celebrity, music, politics, television, would you most want to be your best friend? Harry Styles. Oh, yes. Oh, what a God, dream just, of a person. I will add um, <laughs> licking him. He's just lovely. Yeah. Uh, number five, what's your biggest, mostly meaningless pet peeve? um we have this kate has a a drawer on her dresser that's kind of broken Mm -hmm. and it will shut it will shut but she doesn't shut it and it just drives me crazy it's open all the time and i i constantly like kind of aggressively close it when she's in bed and she just ignores me (laughs) so you've had a conversation and her response is i don't care yeah, we fought a little bit. Mm-hmm. She thought it was stupid, and it, it is. It's yeah. a pet peeve. Mm-hmm. Every time my husband thing. takes a shower, somehow the floor in the bathroom gets wet. I'm like, do you? What do you? What are you, you doing? Do something about that? Like, do yeah. you? There's a towel on the floor to stand on, and then there's another towel to dry yourself off. Like, do you shake like a dog? Like, how does this always happen? And sometimes if it's on vacation, I'll like almost eat shit because I'll walk in and be like, what? I'm like, why <laughs> are you showering outside of the shower? And like a little sea world exit, just yeah. orca style. Yeah, and he's just not interested. He's like, whatever. I'm like, no, not whatever. Stop murdering me. <laughs> um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, my God, so many. Um, th- this is probably not the worst, but I'm just going to go with it because it's what came to mind. Um, you know what a shart is, yes, right? Of course, yes. Yeah. I totally sharted myself on a walk no. with one of my friends. No. We were walking over the bridge in Charleston. We had like just started and I sharted. And I had to like penguin style turn around. Oh no. Is it a good enough friend to just be like, This walk will not continue. I have shat. Oh, I told her immediately. Oh. I think I turned like four shades of crimson, <laughs> but that was uh that was a good moment. That was great. Uh one of my former coworkers at ESPN 1000 in Chicago um, sharted on his wedding morning. Uh, Stop it. Yeah, he was just wait, like waiting around the hotel, watching TV while, you know, obviously his wife took much longer to get ready. So he was like delaying and he had to have someone bring him uh, new underwear to the hotel because he was just laying around in his undies and 
played roulette and lost. Whoa. Yeah, that happens. Oh. Um, number seven. <laughs> What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, my memory. I have a horrible memory and I am such a dork. So, wow, I'm sure you didn't see this one coming, but like Greek <laughs> mythology, I love mythology and I want to be able to remember all their names and all the cities they come from. And just like, I want the family tree and I talk to people who can do it and I'm so jealous. And I also can't like remember what I ate for dinner last night either. So, you know, okay. it, it goes beyond Greek mythology. My memory frustrates me, but in a different way. I remember certain things verbatim, word for word, every second. And then there's entire chunks where I'm like, why don't I remember any of that? That doesn't make any sense. Like, I hate how selective it is. Like the really important things? No, like, like when something's deeply important, I blank. I just Really? No, so it's like, it's like there's, there's no rhyme or reason. Like, I'll just, it, yeah, it's just very, it's very annoying. Because sometimes I'll be like trying to pull from something. I'll be like, why don't I remember any of that? Um... Number eight, any band alive or dead can play your next party. Who is it? Oh, man. Is it really boring if I say the Beatles? No, that's a good answer. I mean, they're pretty popular. People like them. People do seem to like them, don't they? <laughs> I mean, but I like I'm thinking like red album Beatles, like go way back. With There's also something band. to be said for like the bands that, you know, you're going to never see the way they were. That makes it to be appealing. in that moment yeah. and to understand just the 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 acolyte, yeah, just like passing out. Yes, exactly. Oh. The the faint. Oh, love to see that. A couple years ago, I was we were talking about that, and I was like, I really wish I'd seen Pink Floyd when Roger Waters and David Gilmore were like together, mm. and also like Guns and Roses peak eighties, because oh you can go see them now, but it's like not the same. Peak Led Zeppelin would have oh, been. Oh, that would have been really amazing too. Yeah. Uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? Ooh. <laughs> um, I think my biggest failure would be that I didn't pursue a relationship with my father, like a personal truly getting to know each other better. Hmm. And that goes both ways. Yeah. He could have done it better too, but ultimately I think I was the one with the power and I didn't use it. It's really interesting, especially in light of Kate's book. I'm sure you guys have had some really interesting conversations yeah. about that, but I think um, I was actually talking to a mutual friend of all of ours who's reading it now, who's also a basketball player. Who's like, I'm, I think it's going to be tough to read because I have the same relationship with my dad. And I was mm. like, I have the opposite. I only connect on non-sports because my dad doesn't care about sports really. <laughs> um, but it's still, I think anyone who reads it makes you think about the choices that you make with your parents. Absolutely. And, um, and even if you're close with them, like, are you, are you getting into the gunky stuff and will you regret it if you don't? Or will are you, you on autopilot? Yeah. Like, did you give up a long time ago because you Certain just they can't change? Yeah, yeah. it's interesting yeah. how we kind of see our parents as not people sometimes. No, they're not. They're they come from Westworld. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so number weird. ten. What three individual words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Oh, um, magical, inviting. They're not super exciting words. I like those. Um, unifier. Ooh, those are good. I like those. Those are much more interesting than the usual. 
And finally, who should I have on this podcast? It could be anyone from anywhere who does anything that I would find interesting. Uh, Jessamine Stanley, faux show. She is, I'm in the middle of reading her newest book that's coming out in June and it's called Yoke. And she's just, she is such a special human. She is irreverent, but generous and funny and, and painfully honest. And she like shakes shit up. And I just adore that about her. She is so unabashedly herself and she's a phenomenal role model. She's on the list too. Um, one of my previous guests, Virgie Tovar, also recommended her. So I'm on it. I'm on Jasmine yeah. Stanley. She's on the list. Thanks for doing yeah. this. This was super fun. Sarah, you are so generous. Speaking of generous women, like Kate and I adore you so much. And you've always shown up and you go out of your way and you take care of so many people. And this is one of the most well-prepared interviews that I've been on. Thank you. So thank you for not just glossing it over. Like you really show up. You really show (laughs) up. I appreciate appreciate that. that. It's very important to me to do that. So I appreciate you saying that. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this week um, in my rants, raves and everything in between is actually a that's what she read and pointed out to me by a great listener, Kelly Johnson, who sent me a story from the Washington Post that she was reminded of while listening to Kristen Kish talk about the best way to keep all of the meals at her restaurant special every night, no matter how many times she makes it. And she said it was to imagine someone very special in the dining room, to think about cooking for a grandparent or a parent or someone who comes in all the time that you really want to please. And uh, the story that Kelly Johnson sent me is from the Washington Post by Kathy Free. The headline is, a Baltimore restaurant owner drives six hours to cook a favorite meal for a terminally ill customer. Um, And if you find it and Google it, you'll read a lovely story that begins like this. The request came in late on a Thursday afternoon to restaurant owner Steve Chu. One of his customers had terminal cancer, and her son-in-law wondered if it would be possible to get the recipe of her favorite broccoli tempura entree so he could make it for her at home in Vermont. Chu, 30, specializes in Asian fusion cuisine and is the co-owner of two Ekaben locations in Baltimore. He read the email on March 11th and instantly knew that he could do better, he said. He quickly replied with an alternative suggestion. Quote, thanks for reaching out, he wrote. We'd like to meet you in Vermont and make it fresh for you. Brandon Jones, 37, was stunned. Quote, I emailed back saying, you do know this is Vermont we're talking about, right? He recalled, it's a six-hour drive. But Steve responded, quote, no problem. You tell us the date, time, and location, and we'll be there. Go and read it. It's, it's really wonderful. And thanks, Kelly, for sharing. Also, a big thanks to regular listener Melissa Battiato, who I hope I said your name right, uh, who sent me the most wonderful handwritten note about how the podcasts keep her company while she gardens and gets stuff done around the house. Uh, your note really made my day, Melissa. So thank you for that. And I do love that people like you dig the podcast and all the different guests and topics because uh, I love doing it so much. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got suggestions for guests or questions or dilemmas. And you should always go to iTunes or the podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars, please. Uh, That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.